Well, let's take our Bibles and turn uh, this morning to Hebrews chapter 8. There's a reason why they don't get me to do the announcements. It's because I forget them. And one of them that I forgot is that next Sunday evening is our uh, Reformation Day celebration with Professor Carl Truman, who this year is from Princeton University. And uh, he's going to be lecturing us, uh, or not lecturing, speaking next Sunday evening. And the choir are going to be singing to us, and we're going to have a heavenly time. That's a prophetic word. Okay, Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole, ch- uh, the whole of the chapter this morning. Let's hear the Word of God. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord." For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest." For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Heavenly Father, grant, we pray, the illumination of the Holy Spirit to clear away the clouds of our thinking, to bring our minds to bear on what You are saying to Your church. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. The focus of this central part of Hebrews is on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been clearing away all the dust of people's thinking and has been bringing them back again and again to this one whom he introduced in the very first line of the book as the eternal God, the Son, through whom 
everything was made that has been made. The one who upholds everything, that is, everything in created reality, by the very word of his power. This one, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and took on flesh and blood and our mortality for the suffering of death, this one who has become our great high priest. And as he's been unfolding this in this chapter, he wants to talk about Jesus as a minister, a minister in the holy places, verse 2, in the true tent. He wants to talk in verse 6 about Christ who has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old covenant. He wants to talk about the ministry of Jesus. What is Jesus' public service for His people, for you as one of Jesus' people this morning? We know that right at the very beginning of the chapter, He reminds us of Jesus' location, and so what He does is He sets the scene of His ministry, and He tells us that Jesus is a minister in a better sanctuary. There's the first point. The scene of His ministry, He is a minister in a better sanctuary. You can see this in verse 4. If He were on earth, He wouldn't be a priest. Jesus was born in the line of Judah, not in the line of Levi, and you had to be born in the line of Levi if you were going to operate in the temple or the tabernacle of Judaism. You could not be a priest if you did not come from that line. Jesus, if He were on earth, could not be a priest. Those priests lived according to the law. Their regulation of their worship was according to the law of Moses, the ceremonial law of Moses. And uh, Jesus did not qualify under the ceremony of the law to be a priest. His priesthood belongs to another kind, and we've been looking at that and if you want to know more about that, you better go back and look, because I'm not going to explain it to you this morning. That's just to get you interested. Go back, do your homework, and listen to the sermons about Melchizedek. That's your clue, and you'll find out why. But here we see what is going on here in verse 5, when he's describing the contrast between what Jesus is doing and what they did, and what they were still doing at the time of the writer writing this book. These earthly priests, they serve, he says in verse 5, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now, what he's saying here is that when you think about the location of the old, the old Jewish priesthood and the priesthood of Christ, you are to think of an absolute contrast. The location of these earthly priests was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Take the word copy. What does a copy suggest? A two-dimensional drawing or plan of a three-dimensional building. What does a shadow suggest to you? It suggests a solid body 
that is casting a shadow on the ground. The shadow is not the reality. It is the solid body that is casting the shadow that is the reality. And what the author is saying to us is this. What's important for you and I this morning is not to possess the copy, but the reality. Not to have the shadow, but the substance. And he's making a very clear distinction between what went on under Moses in Judaism for that thousand years or so before Jesus came and what has happened now that Jesus has come. He takes them back to the story of how Israel got the law. When Moses was on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, God showed him a copy a copy which he was to take down, which he was to follow, and in the details and in the architectural schema of the tabernacle, which later developed into the temple, the place where they would worship God. God said to him, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And that's precisely what Moses did. He, he made the tabernacle, and he made it on the basis of the plans given to him by God. What the author is saying is, that was only ever a shadow cast by the solid object of the eternal realities of God's existence. It was never the real thing. It was a shadow. It was a copy. It was never the substance. Now, it's very interesting that the author here borrows language, which some people make a lot of, uh, language from Philo, who was a Jewish thinker and philosopher based on Plato, who was the, the ancient Greek philosopher, uh, and the language of the shadow and the copy and so on is language, shadow, substance, and so on is language that you would find in those philosophers. But here you notice that the thought world of the author of Hebrews is decidedly Christian. It's a little bit like what the fathers did when they used language that was used of Aristotle. They took it they reinvented the usage of the words in order to suit and to fit an account that Christians could make based on what they learned from Scripture of God and so on. They used the words, but they baptized the words and used them in their baptized form as Christian words describing Christian realities. And so the author here, though he uses Platonic words, is not describing a mental idea of an ideal realm, which Plato did. He is talking about two distinct ontologies, two distinct realities. He's talking about the infinite contrast, the fundamental contrast that exists between the sphere of God's existence on the one hand and the realm of created reality, which includes men and angels and things, on the other. An absolute distinction. So the tabernacle and the temple were only the shadows of that existence of God. No material building, no animal sacrifice could ever correspond to those heavenly realities. Christ's body and Christ's sacrifice. 
Where is the scene of Christ's ministry? Today, He is a minister in a better sanctuary. He has gone through the heavens. He is seated at the right hand of God. Osiander, one of the reformers, puts it like this. When it says that He is seated, it defines the session of Christ, that is, the sitting down of Christ, not in terms of a place, but in terms of the heavenly majesty. Where is Christ now? He is in the place of heavenly majesty, in which He reigns, and all things are governed by His will. That's where Christ is. That's the scene of His ministry. But then secondly, He talks about the status of Jesus' ministry. Jesus, He says, is the minister of a better covenant. Look at these words. Christ has ordained a ministry that is obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, here we have to pick out this word covenant for a moment. He is the mediator of a better covenant. What do we mean by a covenant? We often have covenants or treaties or pacts between people who have been in conflict. In conflict. That's the idea behind it. Uh, two people in conflict or two parties in conflict, they come together and they come together through the work of mediation. Now, I had a friend, a long-standing friend, he's now gone to heaven, and he sees those realities about which we've been speaking. But uh, at one point in his life, he was a very successful businessman, but at one point in his life, the government asked him to head up a, a commission or a committee of parliament there in the UK to look into the relationships between business on the one hand and the trades unions on the other. Sir Fred's task was that of mediation, arbitration. He brought these people together in a closed room. He banged their heads together for several hours, and they left with an agreement. It was a great job. He relished every moment of it. And he relished telling me about some of those moments that he had. Uh, it's something we could do with today in a whole variety of ways, which I will not go into because I, I try not to get political from the pulpit. But anyway, some knocking of heads together is one way of resolving conflicts. So this word covenant comes from a mediation process. And you see, that's the word that's used here, isn't it? The word that's used about the Lord Jesus. His, he is the mediator of a better covenant. He is the one who resolves the issues between two parties. And here the parties are God and humanity, God and us. That's where the conflict lies. Now, usually a mediator has to share the same nature as the parties involved. So, for example, you bring together the trade unionists and the businessmen into a room, and there's one thing they share. There's one thing they share all of them together, isn't there? they're all humans. So, the mediator, the arbitrator, they ha he has to be a human as well so that he can bring them together. The problem is that when, you're, when the conflicting parties, one is God and one is man, are concerned, there is only one who has the nature of both parties, and that is the God-man, the mediator, Christ. That's the, that word Christ is used by the New Testament 
when we're talking about the God-man, the two natures together in the office of the Messiah and the Mediator. Paul puts it like this in 1 Timothy. He says, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is trusted by God because He is God. And He is trusted by man when we put our trust in Him. He is the nature of man. He is He who had the eternal nature of God, as we read in chapter 1, takes on Himself for a little while flesh and blood. He makes Himself lower than the angels for a little while, taking our flesh and blood, permanently taking our flesh and blood, in order that He might do several things, in order that He might make peace, in order that He might reconcile the two parties, in order that He might bring them together and make satisfaction for the breakdown in the relationship and reestablish the relationship, make it better than it ever was. And behind the action of the mediator in the story is the infinite love of God and His grace and mercy who comes to towards us, who makes the moves towards us, who, who initiates the relationship towards us, who wants to enter into a new relationship or arrangement with us, but must do it at no cost to his character or his righteousness or his rule or his law, because if he did so, he would cease to be who he is. If God did not deal righteously and according to the law with our sin, with our, with our problem in the relationship, it would make Him to be infinitely unstable, unreliable. You could not depend on Him for anything. He would be random. Can you imagine? And only Christ could undertake to be the mediator because He could satisfy divine justice. He could glorify divine government. He could fulfill divine law. Only He could do the work for us because He was both God by nature and human by nature. Only then could it be said through His action that God purchased His church with His own blood, as the Bible says. God is invisible. God is immaterial. He has no blood, but the God-man has our humanity to bleed and die for His people. Why does He bleed and die for His people? What is He doing? Well, He's procuring, He's purchasing so that He might communicate to you, so that He might give to you all the good things that God has promised to do for you and to be for you. He's doing all that's necessary to deliver to His people the outcomes of a better covenant. When we see Him speaking about a better covenant, we immediately ask the question, better than what? There are several other covenants we know about in the Old Testament, for example. The very, very first one is where the problem all started. In the Garden of Eden, our first parent, Adam, was in a covenant relationship with God. It was a straightforward arrangement between God and humanity. It involved obedience or disobedience, reward or punishment, life or death. It was a straightforward covenant of works. 
God gave Adam a law, one law, just one in the Garden of Eden. And that law was contingent on obedience. Where there was obedience, there would be access to the tree of life and eternal life forever. Disobedience would lead to death. We all know the story. You read about it in our newspapers. You see it on television and on Facebook all the time. What has happened is Adam disobeyed. Adam was excluded from the Garden of Eden. Adam brought death down on the world. The wages of sin is death. Every broken relationship, every broken heart in this room, every broken law represented by our disobedience, everything comes from that first sin. And every time we break the law or break a heart or break a relationship, we are voting with Adam against God. That's the reality. And yet here is the amazing thing. At the moment of his exclusion from the garden, at that very moment when he is thrust out of the presence of God, God comes to Adam and Eve and makes them a promise, promise of a holy offspring who would effectively reverse the fall, destroy Satan, and repair the broken relationship between God and man. Jesus, Jesus is the mediator of that promise given to Adam, that promise of a covenant based on grace, on the grace of God, on the initiative of God, on the character of God's loving kindness towards you and me, all of Him, all of His moving forward, all of His outpouring of Himself towards us in generosity, in gift, and in love. Even in Adam's day, Christ was the mediator of that covenant. That covenant of grace announced to Adam outside the gates of Eden, reiterated to Abraham later on in the book of Genesis. Christ is the only mediator of that covenant. Herman Bavinck puts it like this, Christ who existed in the days of Adam, exercised his office of mediator then because he is the only mediator for all humans at all times, wherever they might be. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But that's not what the references here to a better covenant. In fact, it's quite clear what it's referring to. Look at verse 9. It's referring to the covenant God made with Israel as a nation at Mount Sinai, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Now, in that covenant that God made with, uh, with Israel, you can read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. Read about it in the book of Exodus. That covenant is the one that not only gave us the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but it also gave us the ceremonial law, the institutions of worship, priesthood, sacrificial system. And here the author is saying that God found fault with that covenant. In what way did he find fault with that covenant? Well, whenever I have a thorny theological problem, I turn to Tommy. 
Tommy is a good friend. I've never met him because he's been long dead. Thomas Aquinas puts it like this, Saint Tommy. If uh, the first covenant were faultless, another would not be sought to correct its defects. Why does it say that there was a new covenant? That's going on to say there was a new covenant. The reason it it is, look at verse 7, is that the first covenant was found to be faulty. So what is wrong with that first covenant? Well, Aquinas says this, there was nothing wrong with the law in itself in terms of what the law said and in terms of what the law pointed to, that is, its goal, its end point. The law is good. Paul says that in Romans. The law is good. The fault was not found in the law. Look at verse 8. He finds fault with who? He finds fault with them. That is, with the children of Israel. The fault lies not in the law. The fault lies in the children of Israel. Now, they did not keep the law. They broke the law again and again. And in many ways, that's what highlights the weakness. Paul talks about the weakness of the Mosaic Covenant. It did not provide permanent forgiveness of sins. It did not provide deep assurance of pardon. It did not provide the power we need to live lives resisting sin and pleasing God. All the law of Moses did was reminded us again and again and again, how far short of the glory of God we have come. I had not known what covetousness was, writes the Apostle Paul, if the law did not say, you shall not covet. It just tells us when we've gone wrong. Like the voice on my iPhone, this imperious lady who gets really angry with me when I don't do what I should have done, and she tells me to go this way and do a U-turn and go back to the root. The law tells us when we deviate, but it does not provide us with power to live. Well, let's look here. We have this citation from Jeremiah. It begins at verse 8 and goes right down to verse 12. You notice how it's introduced. It's regarded as God's own speech. He finds fault with them when he says. Who is the he? It's God. In other words, uh, this quotation is not attributed to Jeremiah, though he he did write it. It's not attributed to Holy Scripture, though it's part of Holy Scripture. He goes straight to the fountain of it. It is God speaking to you. And see, here's the one to put in a little caveat here. This is how we should hear Holy Scripture when it's read to us or expounded to us. We should hear God's address to His people. Because God, in the language of uh, Webster, God has ordered created reality to be the domain, the sphere of His saving presence 
and his saving speech, his word. Here we are in this domain of God in which he has placed us to know his saving presence and to hear his speech. Now, what is God saying then through his authorized agent, Jeremiah? He is talking about a new covenant. The days are coming, he says. These are the final days, the last days. These are the days which the writer to the Hebrews tells us in chapter 1 is where we are situated. You and I this morning are situated in these last days. The days are coming when God will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. By the time the writer to the Hebrews is writing, northern, the northern ten tribes have disappeared. They've vanished off the face of the earth. They're still there somewhere, but they've lost their identity. They've lost their coherent existence. They've gone. But he still talks about them because God has not forgotten his promises to his Israel. And here he's thinking not so much about Israel as the nation state, but Israel as the people of God. We are God's Israel. Somebody tweeted this week that uh, it's a pity that they, they named Christians Christians instead of giving them their Bible name, which is the Israel of God. That's where we are. We are the Israel of God. God's plan is for the Israel of God. That is the whole church, the church Catholic, the church universal, His people, wherever they are. So, He's giving a new covenant for His church, His Israel, a new covenant. There's the word new. You find that all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah, just before he quotes this quotation in, in Jeremiah 38, talks about the salvation that God is going to bring, and he describes a new planting of God. Isaiah has God saying, I am making new things. Israel will be called by a new name. God says, I will create new heaven, new earth. Ezekiel says that the Lord will give a new spirit, and again and again, a new heart and a new spirit. It's contrasting the old with the new, this new thing that God is doing. What was wrong with that old covenant? Simply this. It was preparatory. It was partial. It was a shadow and a copy. But it pointed somewhere else. It foreshadowed something else. And when the reality comes, it began to vanish until it disappeared entirely. You know John the Baptist, uh, he was the last and the greatest of the prophets of the old economy. Jesus said that. And he points this out, by the way, in order that we might get, understand that John the Baptist represents through his ministry and by Jesus' comment on his ministry, the relationship of the new to the old. This is what John the Baptist said about Christ, having identified him. He must increase. I must decrease. The new has come. The one who will make 
This new covenant has arrived. And I must decrease. The old is passing away. The shadows are going to disappear when the full sun is out. And that's where we are in salvation history. The Messiah has come. There is a new covenant. And it's characterized by fulfillment. What the shadows represented. Here is the solid object. What the copy represented. Here is the original building in all its fullness. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took a cup of wine. Passing it to his disciples, he said to them, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And through those words and that symbolic action, Jesus uses a phrase that comes straight out of Moses in Exodus 24. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. When Moses said that, he had the blood of an animal. When Jesus said that, there was wine in a cup representing his own blood shed for his people. That's the reality. That's the reality. And this blood, the blood of the new covenant, does the work. Jesus is the enactor of greater promises. And you see where these promises are. Look at verse 10. In this covenant, the law, by the work of the Spirit, will be engraved on people's minds and hearts. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. It is to be an interior work. It is not simply that the law is institutionalized or memorialized. It is that the law of God begins to be worked into the believer. Here is regeneration. Here is new life. Here is the power of God at work in us working on our affections, working on our inclinations, working on our appetites, working on our desires, working on our will to do the will of God, working in us that which is pleasing to Him so that we will to do the will of God. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Maybe you're conscious. Maybe, maybe unlike me and others in, in this room, you were not, you can't remember a time when you didn't love the Lord Jesus, but you, you, were, you were lost to Jesus. Perhaps you only discovered Jesus. You remember a time when you had no will to do His will, no interest in the Lord Jesus, no love for Jesus. You, you would ra rather be anywhere, frankly, than be in this building this morning. What made the difference? Well, what made the difference is this supernatural work. God put His laws into your heart. He gave you a desire that you should read the Bible, that you should go to church, that you should pray, that you should meditate on God's, on God's Word. Not only that, but He gives us a new identity. Look at verse 10 again. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here's an amazing thing. God made that promise to Israel. He makes that promise to you. You say, well, I don't come from any, I don't have any, as far as I know, any biological connection with Abraham. 
or with the house of Judah, so therefore I'm not a Jew and I'm not an Israelite or whatever. But here is God comes to you as a Gentile. He brings you into the family. He, once you were nobodies, you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you were one of the nations, now you are part of the holy nation, God's people. He gives you an identity. He comes to you and he says, I will be their God. They will be my people. A new identity, a new intensity, a new level of realization. You are part of this heavenly city of God, part of the Jerusalem that is above, where our names are written, part of God's own people, a new intimacy with God because you are part of the family. Look at verse 11. A new understanding, a new knowledge. They will not teach everyone his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Here's a new level of illumination. Here's the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating our minds to understand truth. I mean, there are things we find difficult. Yes, of course there are. But He illumines our minds so that we have a knowledge of God. Jesus said, you remember in John 17, He said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a remarkable thing. That's part of this new covenant thing. You have more knowledge of God than Abraham did, that David did, that Isaiah did. You've been illuminated. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see, your understanding, to grasp as far as a created, a creature can understand the things of God. You've come to know that. And above all, look at verse 12. Pardon. I will be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. Here's the delivery of something that was not delivered under Moses' economy, fully delivered in Jesus Christ. Was there a debt to be paid? He paid it. Was there reconciliation to be brought about? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Jesus did it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And here we are this morning. And believer, the reality is that God has dealt with your sin. He has removed it from you. God doesn't have a memory like we do. But what He does is He puts it beyond the bounds of His knowledge of you. He does not see you through your sin. You are pardoned in Christ. He looks at you through the prism of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. And you are complete in Him. Isn't that amazing? But do you know this for yourself? You say, I haven't got there yet. How do I get there? Well, ask God. You say, well, I don't pray. Okay. 
Don't pray. But imagine there's a God and ask him. Because you know what he says? You will seek me and you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. If you call, I will answer. Put him to the test. Put God to the test today. Call on him. Say, make this known to me. Let me see this. God will do this. This is the miracle God does. To open blinded eyes to see the truth as it is in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would do that work, that miracle within us. That our eyes would see him, the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, who is situated in the very majesty of heaven, and uh, that you would, Lord, draw us out after him, we pray in his strong name. Amen.